0: eyes. That's much better now you can actually hear me. OK. Uh, and you've noticed a few things different here this morning. In fact, I wanted to mention uh, I notice we did not get a slide up there that said that the twos and threes and fours and fives were dismissed at this time. If there's any that need to do that, feel free to do that. But uh, a few things were missing along the way, but I uh, appreciate you all coming out and worshiping with us this day. Uh, this past week. I picked up a book that I hadn't looked at in quite some time. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm influenced by my, my brothers and sisters here is, is to read. And something I love to do, something I enjoy doing, something I do too much of sometimes. And um, one of the books that I read recently was um, about a, a Chinese pastor in the underground church in China, present day. This, isn't, this is not a history lesson. This is from the 1990s. His name is Brother Yung. And this individual um, suffered significantly at the hands of the authorities as he was a pastor there with the underground church. Underground church meaning not the so called three self movement, the, the government approved church, uh, but the free church that's underneath. Now, there's a lot of debate going about that today, um, but the way that it's described is those that are in the government-approved churches are kind of like a bird in a cage. They can sing, but they can't go anywhere, and their wings are clipped. Um, that's one description. Whereas the underground church, there's, there's more freedom. This young man at the time, um, 17 years old, started to preach. And as soon as he did, he began to be persecuted by the authorities because he was not so-called authorized to preach the gospel but that was his passion that's what God had called him to do so that's what he did suffered significantly at the hands of the authorities for years and this book is is basically a biography about him it's called The Heavenly Man and it was called so because he had such a perspective that drew your attention away from what he was going through here on this earth and drew it towards heaven he went through so many things as a pastor, imprisoned numerous times. In fact, in one description that he, where he described in the book, some of the book is hard to read, I will tell you that much, where they would push his head under the door of his, of his cell so just his head was outside and the guards would come along and beat and kick his head and he could do nothing. It was brutal. In fact, at one time, his wife came to visit uh, after a particularly difficult period where he had no food, where he had been beaten repeatedly, his hair pulled out, and she went to see him and said, that's not my husband, that's somebody else, isn't it? She didn't even recognize him. And there'd be times when uh, they would drag him through his hometown and, and uh, say, this is what happens to you if you follow this man. Why did he do this? Why did he allow himself? He could have just said, okay, forget it, enough Enough, But no, he was committed to the cause of Christ. He was committed to being obedient, following his master, so much so that he was willing, he was willing, get this, to give up his very life. Now, we're talking from the book of Acts, and we're talking about the early church. And Acts is a book about persecution. In fact, the early church... Especially suffered significantly from persecution. It was a direct attack. This persecution was a direct attack on a specific message and a distinct lifestyle that so they endured. Now, just as a matter of view, remember that the Book of Acts is an illustration of the early church, not meant to be instruction necessarily. That comes later when the apostles wrote. The letters to Timothy, to Titus, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, and so on. That was instruction. This is illustration. Uh, keep in mind also that uh, Acts is a transitional period. And in God's great scheme of things, it was not just... He, he was coming together, bringing it together to drive the birth of the church. It was not simply man dealing the hand that had been dealt him. That's kind of fatalistic. We use that phrase sometimes. no. This transition was and continues to be God's design for the church. He wanted it this way. Even the persecution. From the birth of the church in Acts 2 to the present day, God has been actively involved in the life of the church. And today, you know, we enjoy great wealth and a significant amount of tolerance of Christianity here in the United States. I kind of have to ask myself when I think about that, what's his purpose in that? Don't we risk becoming like much of Europe and allow our Christian faith to be reduced to some sort of cultural anomaly and our church buildings, museums? I think that risk is there. I do fear fear at times that that sometimes that tolerance is the new religion. I don't find that in Scripture. In fact, God, through his Holy Spirit, when he talks about through Christ alone, as we just sang, he's quite intolerant of those who would believe anything other than Christ alone. The closest we see, uh, at least that I have found, is in the book of Acts, where Paul's addressed to the Athenians. He acknowledges their pursuit of other gods. Remember that passage in Acts chapter 17? But he doesn't commend them for it. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. This is chapter 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, I'm not advocating the harsh rhetoric we hear sometimes from some Christian circles, as in they would rail against various issues in our culture like abortion, homosexual lifestyle greed and other vices, and indeed those things are wrong. But our, in, our message to these individuals needs to be repent not saying to an unbelieving world, stop sinning. They can't. That's what they do. Of course they're going to continue to sin. We're not called to make them stop sinning. What we are called to do is to live and teach the gospel of repentance. And then once they come to faith in Christ, it's God's Holy Spirit that convicts them of sin and brings them into holiness. Now, as I ended last week, we were reminded of our own call in our own lives To a life of personal holiness. And uh, interesting, I was commenting to one of my brothers this week, too often here in the church we hear uh, a different pronoun. We hear they, as in, why don't they do it this way? Why don't they fix that? When are they going to start doing this? Instead of the pronoun we, that's us, or more importantly, significantly, I. That's the pronoun. What I ended with last week was this. We each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with God. Not so we can be better individuals, but so that our spirit-filled contribution to the body of Christ brings glory to God. Now, this contribution will be, then be significant no matter what the circumstance, whether it be adversity, persecution, whether it be affliction, whether it be suffering, we will still make that contribution. Now, you notice, if you were to do an overview of the book of Acts, you would see that most, many of the chapters, in fact, I would say most of the chapters in the book of Acts have something to do with persecution. That's how significant it was in the early church. In fact, uh, as we look at today, we're going to look at Stephen, who is considered to be the first martyr. Luke devotes a significant amount of time of his writing on the life of Stephen, even though we only have a very small portion of his life, maybe only weeks or months, I don't know, but there's quite a bit in there about Stephen because it made such a significant impact on the early church. I'm going to back up to Acts chapter 6. I know we started today from our scripture reading in, in um chapter 7, but I want to back up to 6 because we need to find out where this person came from. And again, what I'm going to do is, is move through this rather quickly, 6, 7, and 8, um, and as I did last week, pause now and then to draw some personal application out of this. I won't obviously be able to cover everything in here. There will be other applications, and you might be sitting there reading and thinking, oh, what about this? That's good. You know what? Spirit's prompting you. Listen to it. I'm just pulling a few out of here that I hope to be able to point out that will direct our attention to how we should live, whether or not we're facing persecution. So I'm going to begin with Acts chapter 6, verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can open that. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is the interesting, the Grecian Jews versus the Hebraic Jews. This is a difference, most likely, in both language and culture. And there was some discrimination here, unintentional perhaps, but still it was discrimination that needed to be dealt with. So the leaders sensed a need for some type of systematic procedure that's not what we like to say as far as church speak. When we do church, we just want to say, well, just, you know, if everybody loved each other, we wouldn't have these kind of problems. It's true, but God does design something and he expects us to follow it. So they came up with a procedure. And this is in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, word of God in order to wait on tables. brothers. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Now notice what they did not say. They did not say, let's do a sermon series on discrimination. Uh, They did not say, uh, you know, this is, they did not spiritualize and say, you know, it's more spiritual food that you should be concerned about. They didn't do that either. They didn't condemn the people responsible nor did they form the Exploratory Committee on Discriminative Practices of Hebraic Jews. They took action. They did something. And found some individuals who could concentrate on the practical service. Now, in in verse 3, we can see some have called these deacons, these seven. And although Luke does not refer here to the specific office of deacon. It's interesting to note this. There are three occasions in this short passage where, in, in, through verse 4 where he uses a word very close to that. Uh, in the Greek, it's diakonos. That's deacon. But if you notice in the NIV, in the verse 1, distribution. That's a related word, diakonia. And if you were to drop to verse 2 and see the word wait on tables, which means to serve, that is from the verb diakoneo. And then further on down to verse 4, ministry, the word there is diaconia. That's interesting. This is not necessarily directive, as it comes later in Titus and in Timothy, but it's more descriptive. kind of gives us an idea of what serving the church would be. Um, Verse 4, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of Word Now, notice also that it wasn't just simply a case of for these seven to be just serving tables. There was some responsibility here because they were responsible for the equal distribution of the food. Fairness was significant in God's eyes. And you want to make sure that all were, all were prayer, uh, uh, cared for. And as far as the apostles, we'll give our attention to the ministry, uh, to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, what this action does not imply, it does not imply that the apostles were exempt from hands-on service. Nor does it uh, imply that the seven were therefore not able to teach. They could. However, the apostles were simply acknowledging their primary gifting and calling was to the serving, serving of the word, the ministry of the word. And they are also acknowledging... They can do everything. Something that uh, many of us still have yet to learn. Verse 5. Uh, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Pomenes, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, names all seven of them there, but points out Stephen... Because later, he has something going on in this narrative about Stephen. Singles him out as being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is kind of a precursor to the act of commissioning that we do. Sometimes we commission people for specific tasks, and this is what the apostles did at this point. In verse 7, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Luke often does this throughout his narrative where he'll put a short refrain in there to kind of sum up what was taking place. In addition to this, Stephen brings out Stephen again for good reason. Stephen, selected to serve tables, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Not only was he selected to serve tables, it was more about feeding of the widows. This was a significant responsibility at that time. There was no welfare system. The widows had nothing, no one to fall back on. And often they were left out in the street just to beg. And the church took it upon themselves to take care of them. So that was a significant ministry of the church. And Stephen was... Uh, Described as being full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, he was not only just doing that. Well, it's just my job to take care of the widows. No. He was doing what God had called him to do no matter what it was. First word in the next verse tells you something's different because everything else up to this point was great success. Things are going well. The widows are being cared for. Stephen is preaching. However... Verse nine begins with the word opposition. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of uh, Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. See, the narrative shifts from the seeming success of the early church to something we might perceive as negative false accusations and oppositions from Christian leaders from, uh, from religious leaders now where is the wisdom in verse um, 10 that uh, Stephen has the wisdom by the spirit whom he spoke it wasn't his own yes he was a man of wisdom yes that was one of the criteria that they used find someone who was known to be wise and known to be filled with the spirit but it was definitely God's spirit that was working through him so what should we do these religious leaders are thinking. They could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit by whom he spoke. So here's what they did, verses 11 through 15. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. This was significant. He didn't just say careless words in the presence of these religious leaders. Something like this would be called for uh, the person to be called for their death sentence. This was very, very significant. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Sound familiar? Peter and John, same thing happened to them twice. Jesus happened to him. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. These individuals had to resort to deceit, false testimony. Now you notice there was no other charge brought against Stephen. Because of his strength of character, they couldn't find anything else. And it's interesting because I wondered myself, you know what, um, if you or I were to be brought into court today or brought before someone today, could there be anything that could be said about us with regard to our character and integrity? Kind of a convicting thought on my part when I'm thinking that myself. Uh, further, do it this way. Picture in your own mind an associate of yours. Maybe a school teacher, maybe a friend maybe your boss maybe a co-worker what if we were asked that person what do you think of so and so which by the way uh, for those individuals being considered as, as, as elders in this church we do this we go to their pace, place of employment but what if what if we went to your place and said did you know they attend our church did you know he's a Christian a follower of Christ what would the response be Shock, oh my goodness, you must have the wrong person. Or, oh, I knew they were nice, I just never knew why. Or maybe, well, that may be, he's, he says he's a Christian, but I'll tell you what, let me tell you about some of the things he does. No charge could be brought against Stephen. He was a man of character, strength of character. Only a false accusation of blasphemy, which then led to the question by the high priest... Chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asked him, Are these charges true? This is the court. This is the question. Now, I'm sure at that point, had it been me, there would have been an awkward pause because I would have had to stop to think, What do I say now? Because I could blurt out and say they're all liars. I could say all those bad things about them because it is false accusations. But what did Stephen do? Why didn't he at least attempt to refute these false charges? Instead, what he does in chapter 7, if you skim through that, he launches off into a detailed history of Israel and Moses. And lands on the point at the end in verse 53 that just as Israel of old rejected the prophets sent by God, so the current Jewish leaders rejected the Messiah. No, the accusations weren't true. But the message, of, the message God had for these le- Jewish leaders was, repent. Have you heard that before? Wasn't that in some previous sermons in the book of Acts? Yes. Wasn't that in the Old Testament? Yes. Isn't that what we need today? Yes. And that's what Stephen was preaching. Repent. Now see, the message the Jewish leaders, all their lives, have been teaching was this. Try to be as good as we are, and God will be pleased with you. Or obey this commandment, follow this custom, that's all that's required of you. More like a performance-based religion. Sound familiar? Probably aware of that, but tell you what, we do it ourselves at times. Just as the Jewish leaders were blind to their own shortcomings, so we can be blind to the repentance that's needed In our own lives. In fact, that's what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is for. It might be a familiar verse to you. If it isn't, make it one. Memorize it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's powerful. That is powerful. Uh, Pastor Ralph mentioned earlier about the, the verse in Psalms where it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. If you really pray that, when I really pray that, God does that. And when I study his word, yes, there is encouragement Yes, I find refuge, I find solace, but I also find at times that God is using his word to kind of trim away some of the sin, some of that infection that is still there because I'm a human being. And it's not fun, it's painful. But we need that. We need Hebrews 4.12. We need to be able to pray, God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Because if we really mean that, he will answer that. He will. Well, verses two through 53, Stephen's sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to read all of it, but it, uh, likely, more than likely, Stephen learned this through just memorization and listening. It's unlikely that he read it. There weren't that many copies, they did not just order one up on Amazon and uh, get a used copy sent to him. He had to listen. That's how he had to learn. So he probably recited all of this, Israel's history, from memory. And in summary, uh, I looked at a commentator named Ajith Fernando. Uh it's a commentator, of uh, application commentary of the book of Acts. Excellent. And uh, he kind of summarized and said there are three main themes that he saw in this one sermon. Number one was the activity of God is not confined, confined to the geographical land of Israel. Now, if you see uh, in that uh, passage, you can see in verse 2, Mesopotamia mentioned. If you skim down to verse 4, the land of Chaldeans and Haran. Uh, verse 9, he mentions Egypt. And if you skip all the way to verse 29, he mentions Midian. Verse 30, Mount Sinai. Uh, verse 36, Egypt, the Red Sea, the desert. God's activity is not confined confined to just the geographical land of Israel. He's active everywhere. It's an application for us. We know that he's active wherever we go. Wherever we are, God is active. Often, as we have said before, it's not a matter of us trying to do what God wants, but finding out what he's doing and joining him here, there. Secondly, the second theme that uh, this author found was that worship, is acceptable, worship acceptable, <laughs> acceptable to God is not confined to the Jerusalem temple. Now, if you see in that passage, you'll see the burning bush, you'll see Mount Sinai, you'll see the tabernacle, and in verse 48 he says, God does not live in houses made by men. So that worship is anywhere as well. Just as the activity of God is not limited to Israel, neither is worship limited to a building. And this is something we struggle with today, especially here in the United States. I recall, and I, I may have mentioned this before, um, but an occasion that took place a couple of years in the, in the Philippines that is very memorable to me, um, and that is I was, I was uh, finished preaching in one of the slum areas in the Philippines there, and uh, was walking through the slum area, through the mud and everything else, uh, on our way out. And the preaching had been, uh, typical; had been in these plastic chairs, under a blue plastic tarp, out on the ground, on the mud, uh, with animals running around and and just, that was the slums, that was where they were, that was where they lived. Many of them had no homes themselves. And I just, you know, in conversation, asking, walking out, asking the pastor, so, um, you thinking of getting a place in here, you know, as your church building? And as soon as I said that, as soon as I said that, I knew I had put my American foot in my mouth. Because we typically think of church and building. And I put the two together. He was very gracious, but very direct, in reminding me the church is not a building the church is the people I knew that I know I knew that but it's a good reminder because too often we think of it in terms of a place and the point that's made here is worship acceptable to God is not confined to the Jerusalem temple the third point Uh, The third theme, as we see very clearly at the end, is that the Jews have constantly rejected God's representatives. Now, see, Stephen brings all this out in that long discourse in chapter 7, verses uh, 2 through 53. Then he brings it home in an application. What an application. Look at this. Verse 51 He did not mince words. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Ooh, light that one up, right? Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have a betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Wow. See, it's a rather abrupt end to his sermon because it ended right there. Once he came to that part, uh-uh, no further. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but they were angry. And keep in mind that during this time, his his face was kind of like an angel. There was something descriptive, something different about him that might impress you and me, but obviously did not impress the Jewish leaders. It made them angrier. when they saw, and they heard, and could have convicted their hearts to repentance, but they chose to put that wall up there and said no. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow, what a, what a vision. What a vision that just, God just let him get that glimpse. You're going to be with me pretty soon. Here's what it's like. Look, he said, I see heaven open. He blurted this out. It didn't, didn't help his cause at all. He blurted it out and said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and at this. They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. A horrible, horrific end to what seemed like a promising ministry. Stoned him to death. We have we have little concept of what that's like. We don't know. But it must have been painful. It must have been horrible. And in notes in there, there is a person there watching. This is one of Luke's ways of introducing a person into the narrative that he's going to come back to later on, because he says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was later to become Paul. You kind of wonder what was going through his mind, because here was this Stephen person. All he had to do was refute the charges against him, And he'd probably be walking away. But he didn't. And Saul, Paul, is probably thinking, why doesn't he just say that? Why take this? Especially for a person he claims to be alive and we know is dead. This Jesus of Nazareth person. Now you know the end of the story because later in the narrative we find out that Paul, Saul, indeed meets Jesus. So that's who he is. But at this point... Most likely wondering, why? You could just walk away. But Stephen was committed to saying, no, this is the message God has for the people of Israel. I am commissioned by God to deliver it. And he did, and this was the result. Not only that, Stephen prayed throughout it all. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Sad from our vantage point. But God knew what he was doing. God knew exactly what he was doing. Some similarities you'll notice too to the death that Jesus died on the cross. He said, and maybe Stephen knew those words, echoing Jesus, forgive them. He forgave the people, the very people, who were doing this to him. Well, in chapter 8, the persecution begins in earnest, and there's an individual who is, at the, who is the point person for this. Saul was there, giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Verse 3, But but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And those who had, verse 4, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What do we do with this? What do we do with stories like Stephen's? Um, most likely will never experience the intensity of persecution that he did, Uh, the stoning, the persecution by the religious authorities, taking his very life. But he is still there with the same intensity. And I think that intensity has something to teach us. Now, this is an analogy, and, and, and don't get too carried away with this, but I was thinking through this and thinking about all of our Chicago sports teams. And sometimes approaching playoffs, and whether it be the Super Bowl, or World Series, or whatever, the intensity level increases because they're playing for something. You get the uh, Bears, you get the Bulls getting close to the end of the season, you get the White Sox. Well, you get most of the Chicago teams uh, approaching the end of the season with intensity. Um, But anyway, what happens is the players all of a sudden begin playing as if it matters because they're going to be in the playoffs. And if they're not, they still play the game, but it comes down a bit. And I thought there is a comparison here, loose comparison, okay? But there's a comparison here because sometimes we just do church. We're comfortable. We don't know what it's like to be persecuted. And the intensity level, well, sometimes I feel good. It's not there. Why is that? Should we invite persecution? I'm not saying that. But I do think that we should approach doing church with the intensity level as if we were being persecuted. I think that with Stephen, we should be so committed to preaching the Word and saying repent and being and living and having the godly character that Stephen had that people will notice. And persecution, yeah, it it may come. But I think we should live as if it were. A few things we can learn from this. One, As I was saying, seek the same depth of relationship and fellowship with God with the same intensity and resolve to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. I really believe that's one of the lessons for us, that we seek it with that same intensity. Secondly, I think we can be aware uh, aware of and in prayer for the thousands of brothers and sisters in our church we belong to the same church around the world who are suffering persecution for the cause of Christ. That's happening today. I think we're oblivious to it sometimes. I urge you to go on the website for Voice of, Moder- Voice of the Martyrs and look and see what's taking place and pray for them. Be aware of them. Thirdly, I think we can be inspired by their stories and their commitment to God, understanding anew the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This was not just a hopeful wish on the part of Stephen. He knew Christ lived, he was born, he lived, he died, he resurrected, went back to heaven. He knew that, and he was not going to back down from that message. He believed it with all of his heart, mind, and soul. See, I think sometimes the church, much of the Western world, is enjoying unprecedented freedom and favor in the eyes of governmental authorities. And this was not always the case and quite possibly will not be in the future. We don't know. Now, some, I'll say this, some see our freedom here in America in rapid decline with sinister forces about to envelop and control. To them, I say, remember... God doesn't need the democratic and powerful government of the United States of America to grow his church. He needs us wholly committed to him, no matter what the circumstances. Others would say, in almost a naive way, uh, have a response to future persecution, just kind of trusting the current political system over the sovereignty of God. And to them I say, wake up. Democracy will not reign forever. God's kingdom will. What are we doing to prepare for that? Uh, three things we can learn I think from our brothers and sisters who have endured persecution one God is in control he's sovereign we hear people we hear stories of people like Stephen we hear stories of uh, current day uh, today's martyrs and we think why why God why do you take these people from us Stephen was so promising why God is in control he saw them. Sometimes we can, we can um, have an understanding of what his purposes might be. In this case with Stephen, it sent the believers everywhere throughout the world. If you've heard the story of, of um, Jim Elliot and his four companions there in uh, South America, and you know that his persecutors actually came to know Christ as their Savior. This is back in the 1950s. Sometimes we know, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it doesn't look good, and we say, why, God? But we've got to remember this, God is in control. He is sovereign no matter what. Second lesson I think that we can learn is this. The gospel message is primary. God's message is primary. Stephen's response was to recite all that God had done and then bring it home, not in self-defense, but in a call to repent. Now, we can get distracted with a lot of other good things that we could say, but what's primary and what's at the core of what we do and who we are is the message that God has for us, and that is the message of repentance. Thirdly, I think suffering can serve to strengthen us. I think our light shines brighter when it's darker. I really do. Uh, Brother Yoon's testimony echoes, to this day as one whose light was bright in some very deep darkness. He said on one occasion, he said this, I began to understand that the presence of God was my refuge. Some nice words, but understand something. He had everything taken from him, this, brother and, this uh, Chinese brother and, uh, who was a pastor. He had everything taken. He had no resources, no one to go to, uh, just the clothes on his back sometimes. That's all he had. All they could hurt was his body, and he committed that to God as well. And his testimony was this. I began to understand that the presence of God was my refuge. I'm not expected to seek suffering or persecution, but I do believe I'm expected to be so passionately and completely obedient to my Savior, speaking God's truth with boldness, that when suffering or persecution does come, I can expect it or even welcome it. I would say Stephen exemplifies a radical Christian life it's not a life that just simply seeks to fit in but a life that has as its foundation a thorough knowledge of the word of God and is willing to boldly confront hypocrisy and confront those who would falsely accuse and present a gospel of repentance and a person who is completely yielded to God's spirit and under his control. So much more we could learn from the life of Stephen, but I think that that is true of us. I think our own lives. Convicting for myself as well. How significant is that? Could I do what Stephen did? Not just simply as an inspiration, but it says, I can live like that now. Even though we're not persecuted, I can live like that now can you pray with me our god and father in heaven teach us a theology of suffering rather than therapy for suffering teach us what it means to be so completely holy devoted to you that we're committed to speaking the truth in love. We're committed to the gospel. We're committed to the message of repentance and living that life so that others will notice. Thank you for the, the story of Stephen and for inspiring Luke to write that and what an inspiration that can be for us because we desire, we desire to have, have that same passion and intensity in approaching our Christian lives as Stephen did. Thank you for your work in us. Thank you for teaching us. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.